Jeremiah chapter 1, page 755. Have it open, and we'll try to notice some of the things there and make sense of it. Let's just pray again for God's help. Father God, we've just sung that we're people who stand on every promise of your word. We do sometimes. But often our minds wander and we doubt you and your love and your plans for us. We pray that you'd come this evening by your spirit and speak to us. And Lord, we pray that you'd put a new understanding of who we are deep within us. Make us people who genuinely and at all times stand on every promise of your word. Amen. Last week we began a series of studies in this book of Jeremiah, but we've called it Living in Exile, where we began by thinking about the place of Christians in modern-day Britain. And we said in the end that it's hard to make a case for Britain being a Christian country anymore, not judging by the, the laws that are being passed and the society that we're creating together. Christians feel much less at home in British culture than they have done in recent times. Uh, Increasingly, we have a sense of being pushed to the margins of British society, like strangers living in a strange land. We decided that we were keen to learn more about this situation if only there was a part of God's word that that spoke into that, of a time when God's people were taken out of the center and placed on the, the periphery. And we noticed as we began to think it that that's something like what happened for God's people in the exile. And we thought that we'd pay some attention then to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah a prophet before and during the exile of God's people. We spent last week thinking a little bit about the times in which Jeremiah lived, and actually that first three verses of Jeremiah chapter 1 at least places the whole book of Jeremiah in its historical context. He is a prophet during the reign of predominantly of three kings of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. But what we don't see in that short paragraph is that these were possibly the darkest times that Judah had ever lived through up until that point. The times end with Jerusalem being destroyed, the temple being looted, and a good number of the people being dragged off into exile in Babylon. It's in this culture that we thought about last week and in this moment in history that God wants Jeremiah to go and to be a prophet to the people. God wanted Jeremiah to go and bring his word to a people who had shown for centuries that they weren't that interested in listening to God. Not that inviting a calling. And we said last week, you wouldn't want to do it. And the truth is, we don't want to do it today either. We don't find it easy to live for God in a culture that's running headlong in the opposite direction. 
We struggle to speak God's message clearly in a culture where we're increasingly pushed to the margins and misunderstood. We lack the courage to live well for God in an exile kind of culture. We struggle to respond positively to God's call. And we're not alone. None of these dynamics are hidden here in Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to see how Jeremiah struggles here to come to terms with God's call. And we're going to see the great lengths that God goes to to encourage him and to inspire him for the work that lies ahead. Just one thing that will help you to understand the book of Jeremiah before we get into chapter 1. If you take last week's sermon and this week's together, you'll see that they're, they're two very different levels at which the book of Jeremiah operates. So last week we started on the political level. If you remember, we talked about the, the history of the time, the reign of those kings, the larger nations in the ancient Near East who were bullying Judah at the time, Assyria, Egypt, and finally Babylon. We were focusing at, at the fate of a nation. And the book of Jeremiah works at that level. It talks about the fate of Judah. But this week, we move to the personal level. Because unlike a lot of the prophetic books, we learn a lot about Jeremiah in this book. A lot of prophets, all we know about them is their message. But with Jeremiah, we see his life. And in particular, his struggles. So here we see this week, God calling a man, one man from a priestly village of Anathoth, Jeremiah, and we're going to see one, God's call on Jeremiah. Secondly, Jeremiah's response. And thirdly, God's last word. And I hope that as we do that, we, as people who live called lives, will have some sense of, of God encouraging us for the calling that he's placed on us. So first of all, God's call to Jeremiah. God asked Jeremiah to do something, and he said no. Jeremiah said, no, I can't do what you're asking. I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. Jeremiah immediately sensed that the thing that God was calling was beyond him. Couldn't do it. To be a prophet, you need to be convinced of two realities. Absolutely convinced of them. First of all, you've got to be convinced that God's alive and well and at work. And secondly, you've got to believe that life here and now matters because a prophet is somebody who speaks the words of the living God into the here and now. A prophet is obsessed with God and obsessed with now. If you're weak on either of those, you're not a prophet. If you're obsessed with God but you don't care about here and now, then you're not prophetic because you don't believe that God's message matters in the everyday if you're obsessed with here and now but have a, a weak sense of God's voice, then you've no message to bring to, to the Monday to Saturday realities. A prophet sees God and sees the world, both large. Another thing about prophets, they live what they say. Their, their words aren't enough. Prophetic speeches have to be authenticated by a prophetic life. So prophets who call people to live a certain way, need to live well themselves. 
Prophets let people know who God is, what he's like, and what he says, and what he's doing. Eugene Peterson says that a prophet wakes us up from our sleepy complacency so that we see the great and stunning drama that is our existence and then pushes us onto the stage playing our parts whether we think we're ready or not. Prophets are a pain, a real pain, because what they do is they rip off the shiny veneer that we put over our lives and over our churches. A prophet exposes our attitudes and speaks the truth that God has revealed to him. A prophet makes it difficult to continue to live a selfish or a sloppy life. We don't want prophets around. We'll see that in the book of Jeremiah. And it's probably because he understood all of this that Jeremiah didn't want to be a prophet. God called, and he said no. God called Jeremiah to be this kind of a guy. And he said, no, I can't do it. I'm not qualified. I haven't enough theological training. I'm not experienced enough in the ways of the world. I'm young. I think we all know that tactic, don't we? When God calls us. I couldn't possibly do that. We say, and we're brilliant at making our excuses for not living our lives the best that God wants us to live them. I'm only young. I'm only a stay-at-home mom. I'm only a lay person. I'm not a great preacher. I don't have that much time or training or confidence or whatever it is. We feel that God's asking too much of us. We can't cope with life as we're trying to live it now. So how can we, how can we do more? How can we rise to the next level? No, I, I can't do it. And actually, we're right. We're, a lot of us aren't doing very well of living life now. It does feel more than we can manage. There's an enormous gap between what we think we can do and the kinds of things that we sense God wants us to do. He calls us to love our enemies as ourselves, to speak about Jesus to our friends and our neighbors. He calls us to plant new churches, to bring the gospel to Ireland and to, to Europe. Have you ever thought about trying to bring the gospel to modern-day Europe? No, we can't do it. We'd be happy just doing our jobs and watching box sets. God's call is too big, too demanding. God's call, be my prophet. Jeremiah's response, no, I can't do it. And then God's final word. A word to encourage this young man, to inspire him to accept God's commission. Jeremiah makes his excuse, but God won't have any of it. He says in verse 7, 
do not say, I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. God hasn't left much out there, really, has he? You know, a prophet who has to go to everyone saying everything. God's not letting him off the hook. Two visions God gives him to, to bolster this, this young man and, and to, to prepare him for the work that he's called him to. The first, verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree. I replied, the Lord said to me, you've seen correctly, for I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The almond's one of the earliest blooms in Palestine, and although I'm no expert, I believe even in, in these neighborhoods in suburban East Belfast, almonds are some of the first blossoms that you would see uh, driving around the neighborhood. The tree, before it sends out any leaves, sends out these, these snowy white almonds. While the land's still chill from winter, before much sunshine or summer has come, these, these blossoms, untended and unforced, just appear. And it happens every spring. And the blossom, beautiful as it is, speaks of something beyond itself. You know when you see the almond blossom, when you, when you see the blossom in the tree, you know that summer's coming. You know that the, 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 the plants are going to, to grow their, their green shoots. The trees will soon be budding. The swallows will return from their migration. The fruit will start to grow. The, the blossom is beautiful in itself, but it speaks of something more that's coming, a promise of better things to come. God says to Jeremiah that he's going to watch over his words, these words that promise so much, and he's going to ensure that they deliver. I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. If you read that little interaction between Jeremiah and God, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense, it's because we miss a pun that's there in the Hebrew. The word almond and the word watching are only a, a small smidgen away from each other in the Hebrew. So the conversation goes something like this. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see a shakhed, an almond. Good, you see very well, for I am shakhed, watching my words to perform it. God says to Jeremiah, I'm watching my words the way a shepherd watches his sheep. None of these words that you're going to speak, that I'm going to give you, none of them's going to go missing. Not one of them's going to be lost. I'm going to bring your words into some sort of living completion. So do you see what, what God's done here to this young guy who says, no, I can't do it. He says, well, yes, you are. And, and here's how it's going to be. And he gives him a kind of a, an audiovisual image a visual image and an audio pun, and the two combine together. And, and it's an image that I'm imagining stuck in Jeremiah's life for as long as he lived. An almond blossom. Every spring for the rest of his life, when he sees an almond blossom, he'll remember God's word bursting forth. And he'll remember because of the pun, he'll remember that God's going to watch over those words and make sure that not one of them goes missing. 
Friends, we can't live for God without sustaining vision. The writer of the Proverbs tells us in chapter 29, where there is no vision, the people perish. If we have no vision of the word of God, something like this, that it's a blossom bursting forth, new words from God to our hearts and through us to others, then we will perish. Our life in Christ will shrivel. If we don't believe that God's watching over his word, that he's going to keep his promises despite what's going on in our lives and in the culture around us, then we're going to perish. That's why we have our daily devotions, why we listen to weekly sermons, and why we engage in small group Bible study, to remain attentive to the Word of God, to notice the blossoms, and to remember that God's Word will not fail to do what He calls it to do. We need this kind of vision if we're to live well for God. The second vision comes in verses 12 to 14. It's a much more ominous one. Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. Think of that image for a moment, uh, the boiling pot. It strikes fear into the very heart of me once I, once I get it. I'm imagining a common scene in our kitchen. One of my young daughters, Sophie or Claire, is perched on the little red chair, looking while Claire's at the stove cooking. They're trying to learn from their mum how to do what mums do. And Claire's, you know, I could write the script because I've heard this so often. Be careful, don't touch that, it would burn you. And yet somehow, despite all the warnings, I'm imagining that one of the girls manages to reach the handle and pull down a pot of boiling water. Disaster. Complete calamity. Injury, destruction. That's the image here. A boiling pot, this time on a national scale, tilting away from the land of the north over the land of Judah. The village of Anathoth, where Jeremiah lives, Jerusalem, three miles down the road, the place of God's temple, all in the, the path of this destruction. And we're told in verses 14 to 15 a little bit more of what shape this destruction is going to take. It's, it's going to be enemy armies, murdering, raping, pillaging as they come. Enemy kings and officers are going to camp outside the very gates of Jerusalem. And in verse 16, we're told that this, all of this, will be God's judgment on his people. A sobering vision. G.K. Chesterton once said about trouble, I believe in getting into hot water. It keeps you clean. A scalding judgment is coming. 
because God's people are stinking. They are rank and foul. And this, God says, is the only way to deal with the corruption that for generations has been among them. They've forsaken God. They've burned incense to other gods. They've worshipped idols of their own making. This war that God's sending on them is going to act as a wake-up call. It's going to interrupt them from their, their trivialized, distracted, compromised lives. It's going to force them back to the only thing that matters, the living God among them and how they relate to him. It's an image that seems only negative. But actually, there's something important and positive even about an image like this. Because this image does two things for us. It explains evil and it limits it. God will send armies from the north as agents of his judgment. But it's not the world gone mad. It's God doing something. Evil hasn't gone out of control. This is a carefully commanded judgment, and God's the commander. Folks, we need to vision something like this if we're going to live well for God in the times in which we live. If it's true, as we said last week, that Britain is no longer a Christian country, if it's true that we're heading as the church of Jesus Christ in Britain and in the Western world into some sort of a, a almost biblical kind of exile, if we're removed from the center of society and placed on its very edge, then we need to know what God might be doing in all of this. If we don't understand this right, we will think that God is defeated. We will think that God has somehow lost out to the forces of secularism. Friends, God's not defeated. God hasn't run out of ideas or energy for modern-day Britain or the Western world. Christianity in the UK isn't finished. God is at work. But it seems to me very possible that in our times, God is working in judgment. That a boiling, cleansing water designed to wake us from our apathy, to clean us from our filth, might just be poured out among us. I wonder, are you willing to be open to that? But with this, this image and as always with God's judgment, notice it has its limits. God never seeks to destroy his people, but always to heal them and to restore them. He never breaks his promise to be their God. So God gives Jeremiah this young, hesitant man from Anathoth, two different but complementary visions. The first vision convinces Jeremiah that the word of God bursts forth 
in new ways and that God's going to watch over that word until it's fulfilled. The second makes it clear to Jeremiah that the world is a dangerous place, but that the danger isn't final. Even God's judgment has a, a limit and a purpose. If we're going to live well for God, we need to, to hold these two visions. We need to understand God and the world supremely well. And we're inclined not to. We're inclined to both underestimate God and to overestimate evil. We spend so much time listening to journalists and analysts that we can't see what God's doing in the world. We don't listen to the prophets enough. We don't see what God's doing. We imagine that he's doing nothing. And we look at the evil in the world and we imagine that the game is up, that evil has triumphed and has a, a, a grip on us. But these visions show us more. They keep us attentive to God and his word, believing that his plans will be fulfilled. They keep us aware of evil, but, but show us that it's limited. God's going to finally use evil for his good. God gave Jeremiah two visions. Did they work? Well, yeah, they did. We'll see as we read Jeremiah's life evidence that these two visions served him well. They were a curriculum forming his soul. They turned an ins insecure young man into a solid, mature adult. Jeremiah allowed himself to be shaped by these visions. Not by the fashions of his day, not by his feelings about himself. And we'll see as we read this book together, by the way, that this was no walk in the park. Jeremiah often felt terrible. He was treated terribly. He often felt weak and he was near to despair. Jeremiah walked in the face of opposition all his life, but he walked strong. His emotions may have failed him, but his faith held fast. In fact, he turned out to be just what God said he would be. Look at verse 18. This is what God said, and this is what Jeremiah turned out to be. He turned out to be a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. Folks, that's not bad for someone who started out only a youth a few verses earlier. A fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. That might be what's needed today. People like that. I want to spend the last few moments with you glossing over or, or looking at the verses that we glossed over right at the start of our passage because in a sense these are God's first words. Before God calls Jeremiah to do anything for him, God tells Jeremiah something about Jeremiah. Tells this young man from Anathoth something about himself. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were, set, before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. All of this 
before Jeremiah did anything. God tells the young man, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We're known before we're born. We think that the world starts in that moment when we start to notice things and start to to make our plans and start to achieve things. That's what it feels like to us. That's when life starts. No. Eugene Peterson says, we enter a world we didn't create. We grow into a life already provided for us. If we're going to live appropriately, we must be aware that we're living in the middle of a story that has begun and will be concluded by another. And this other is God. God's doing a lot of stuff in the world. And when I'm born and called, I get to find my place in what he's doing. I wonder, do you know that about yourself? That you were known by the living God before you knew anything much about anything? Or are we still trying to create our own identities for ourselves with what we achieve and with what other people think of us? Folks, that's a poor second best to this identity. This identity we've already been given. Before you were formed, I knew you. God did another thing for Jeremiah before he did anything for God. Before you were born, I set you apart. God chose him. I still remember the daily tradition in primary school of picking teams in the playground to play football and it still brings out a cold sweat because what happened was that the two best guys were appointed well I don't even think they were appointed they usually appointed themselves to be the captains of the teams so they'd stand over there and the rest of us would line up over here and they would start turn about picking players for their team and naturally enough they start with the the best player and and so on so you're standing there all the time and you're, you're thinking, goodness, oh, I hope it's me next. You know, better be soon. And then they're down to the last two and, and then you're really hoping that you're the next choice because you know that if you're not, then that you were last. And I remember one time, uh, I'm sure it happened more than once, but I remember it once where the teams were picked and I was the last guy and not only did I have the humiliation of being the last guy, but an argument broke out between the two captains where the captain whose turn it was to take me said, I don't want them. And the other guy said, well, I don't want them. And we, we have these moments in life where we, we aren't even nothing. Circumstances make us into less than nothing. We're passed over, we're not chosen, we're not the winners, we're not the, the X-factor people. And here the living God comes to this young fella and he says, before you were born, 
I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I chose you. It doesn't matter if you're never chosen for anything else in your life. I chose you. You're not a zero. You're not a minus. God has set me apart for a work in life that only I can do. And no one is going to be better at Christo, at, than Christoph Ebbinghaus at doing this work that God has called me to do. No one can substitute for me. No one can replace me. I've been chosen to do this work. I wonder, do you know that about yourself? That you've been chosen by the living God long before you were born. Long before you were good at anything. God decided that you were good enough for the work he wanted you to do. Your life doesn't depend on what you got in the 11 plus. It doesn't depend on whether there's a market for your kind of personality or your kind of looks. The living God, before you were born, says, I set you apart. I chose you. Before Jeremiah did anything for God, God tells him, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And the word appointed here actually means to give. I gave you, God says, as a prophet to the nations. God gives, he's generous. Before Jeremiah ever got it together, God gave him away. And that's what God does. Did it with his own son. God so loved the world that he gave and now he's doing it with Jeremiah. And I can hear Jeremiah's objection and yours as well. Wait a minute. Don't be so quick in giving me away. What about me? What about my rights? And I can hear God's reply. Sorry, Jeremiah. Too late. Did it before you were born. Gave you away. It's a done deal. I wonder, do you know that about yourself? That you've been given away? You see, the Bible teaches that we're made in the image of the living God. And God himself is a giving God who gives himself. And we're made to be like him. And we're to be a giving people. If we try to live life holding back, resisting this, this being given away, then we live against the grain. We live out of step with the living God. We live a miserable life. Giving is what we do best. It's what we're made for. We give ourselves away because the living God's already done it. God called Jeremiah. Jeremiah tried to say no. He could have hung on in there, could have refused and stayed in his wee house in the street there in Anathoth could have followed his dad into the priesthood. That's what everyone expected of him. He could have conformed with all the habits of his culture that were every bit as dull as the habits of ours. But he didn't. He believed what God told him about who he was. Known, chosen, 
and given. And he threw himself into the appointment God gave him. Folks, we live, I think, in a time equally as inhospitable to the gospel and to God's people as the times of Jeremiah. We probably have the same prospects of Jeremiah taking God's word to people who aren't going to listen. Brilliant. What a calling. But we're known. We're chosen. And we're given away. I wonder, are we learning to find our identity in the living God? Let's, let's pray that we too, like Jeremiah, would one day be a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall. People who stand because we stand on the living God. Let's pray. Father God, when we hear your call in our lives, before we even hear you out, we say, no, I can't do it. It's beyond me. Lord, help us to hear your voice this evening. Help us to hear everything that you've said. Help us to know that we are known and chosen and given. And help us to live out that identity. Come what may. Because we know that you're a strong God and a good God, and you will not let us fall. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.